How many of you like to go on a trip? Don't you like vacation? It's kind of a way you, you can take yourself out of the normal perspective and, and, and get a pers- uh, get, gain a better uh, a vantage point for what's going on. Uh, that's what we get to do when we come together as a body. One time where we get to, to have this, whether it's small group or Sunday morning, we, we set aside various things to go on a journey together. It's not your journey or my journey, but it's the journey of the gospel. And in this particular case, the gospel that began to impact a very influential city and a small group of people. But you realize that as you're preparing for a journey and a trip, there's some level of excitement. I remember when my, my parents would plan for these vacations. We, we always had a timeshare, so my father was always specific about planning two years ahead of time. So in one sense, we had this two-year itinerary knowing we're going to Colorado here, we're going to California here, and we always drove. Family of seven, you don't fly. Okay? You drive everywhere. And now you second-guess with prices of gas going anywhere. Okay? But we, that's what we did. And so we had this perspective where we were excited. I can remember in the weeks and the months leading up to that family vacation, it was like, it's almost here. As a young person, I was like, I'm getting off school. I've, I've, I don't have to do homework for a while. But I will tell you this, as the journey became closer and, and the nights drew near, the excitement began to, uh, begin to erupt in all of my four other brothers thinking about our large conversion van and the hours that we would spend in that van. Unity in the van was a fragile component. <laughs> when you go on a journey, and I, oh, I, I think to myself, uh, the, the things that we did to my parents uh, on those journeys, I wonder if cars driving by us didn't realizing that there was a WWF ring in the back with the bed laid down. Uh, that we could wrestle, we could do all kinds of things, as that fan just shifted. My poor mother. But there was all this excitement, and you would always hear these things, but we, we were excited, we were, we were anticipating that journey. And, and my dad would even sometimes, this is how, this is how we would work, he, he would sometimes even hand out a, a trip itinerary to all of us. I'm thinking, well, this is going to go out the window in about three minutes. So you think about it as we join together on a very important journey that we get to embark on in the life of the Philippian believers, in the life of the Philippian church. We get to explore a variety of things that the Apostle Paul had to highlight in the life of this church at a moment in time so that we can be enamored about what God is doing and where the gospel went and how it got there. As I said, unity certainly can be a fragile thing. And the, and the reality was, is one of the ways to mitigate that from my parents was to leave at night and be a night warrior. Drive all night and everybody would sleep. That is not my hope for all of you. That as we go, you, you just drift off into sleep for the sake of unity. The goal of this is that we then sit back and see the things that God is doing And we are enamored as we observe the various facets of how the gospel went where it went, accomplished what it accomplished, so that we can sit sit back in adoration and pleasure knowing, you know, wow, God is really that good and the gospel is really that powerful. Well, one of the verses that we are going to read a number of times through this Uh, through this journey together, and I really believe uh, it's kind of a marker for the book. If you had to highlight, among the many different uh, emphases in the book itself, two that you're going to find are are these these emphases of unity and joy. You see it over and over again. But notice notice this in Philippians 1.27. Paul says this, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and, I see, and, and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now catch this. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, there's something very unique about a group of people who come together with one focus, in one mindset, driven by one Holy Spirit that indwells them with the, with the entire focus to minister side by side. 
Some of you have been doing that in, in the course of children's Sunday school in a variety of different ways. Isn't that special? I mean, could you imagine if all you were ever doing was ministering all by yourself? I mean, you'd be like, yes, hi. Oh. I mean, this is great. But isn't it better when all of a sudden you look around and everybody's excited about what you're excited about? And it's the gospel? This is, this is what Paul commends these believers to say, that there's something transformative about the life-changing power of the gospel, which is why he says here, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So we begin to have to ask ourselves the question, what does that look like? How's Paul going to unfold that? And we, we begin to get a glimpse of Paul's sense of urgency, don't we? That whether I come and whether I see you or not or I'm absent, that you do this one thing. Don't be disunified. Oh, I can think of so many times over the course of this last year and a half of all the, the, the disunity that has occurred in churches. Hearing stories from pastors and friends uh, who have pastored churches and watching congregations get so divided that they almost shut their doors because they could not see any more working side by side with their fellow brother or fellow sister in Jesus Christ because they were so consumed with various preferential components. Paul says that can't be the body of Christ. And he's saying to the Philippian believers, there are a lot of things that are going to happen, but because I know that, that unity is somewhat of a fragile component, you've got to work hard for it. Don't you find unity is hard work? Okay. You know that if you got married. You know that if you had children. Trying to get everybody doing the same thing is like, is like trying to get to church on time on Sunday morning every time with a family of five. It's like there's always something prohibiting us from getting where it feels like we need to go. Paul is, is really helping us say, you know what, in the book of Philippians, there's something that it's going to look like being a worthy servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether anyone else, by the way, will see your efforts to be side by side, unified with the body, whether someone sees you or not, that you be of one mind and one spirit, working for the sake of the gospel, side by side for, for the proclamation of the gospel. Now, as we embark on this particular journey, it's always challenging. There are things that you need to know on a trip, and there are things that you have to begin to start to wonder, okay, how do we set the stage for the study of the book of Philippians? You can jump right in, but if you don't have various background information, I'll tell you, you will be at a loss for understanding various points of this book. So when we think about this, we can't forget to pack on our journey certain biblical mindsets that will help us, not only in interpretation, not only in observation, but also in application. If we don't go here first, all of a sudden we are ill-equipped where you get to the end of that journey, and I'm feeling that right now. I've unpacked a various portion of the truck, praise the Lord, and then you get into the place you're staying, and you're saying, where is... Oh, it's in a... No, it's not. It's back in South Carolina. Or I need... Oh, I, thought, I didn't think that I would need that. Uh, I've already made two trips to Walmart. I'm thinking, how many more of this can I handle? But the reality is, is we've got to have certain things that we can't leave behind as we start a book like this. And so I want to, what I want to do this morning, as, right before we jump into the very first two verses of this, is I want to lay out some packing tips, some biblical packing tips that you can think about as we study and, and are encouraged to meditate together on the book of Philippians itself. Here's tip number one. Tip number one is biblical observation. You realize as you go through any particular book that if, if all you were to do is just rush through the book, and you probably have done this a time or two as you read like, ah, oh, I've read it. I bet, how many of you here have read the book of Philippians before? Have you read it before? Okay, so there's some sense of familiarity to it. And you could run through it right away, and you might even blow by various components. But we have to be, as biblical interpreters, biblical observers, 
We have to get really good at thinking, what is this trying to say? And what is the necessary information that I need to know? Well, let's start with this. First of all, as you come to any particular book, you're going to begin to notice. uh, Very first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. There's something about an author's perspective, and in this case, Paul, that gets us to step back for a moment and think, what's going on with him? Now you realize in the life of Paul, one of the most incredible ways that he displays a sense of unity is that in side-by-side work of the gospel is that Paul is actually in a Roman prison. You think, it's not like he just decided to take a hiatus for a moment, take a little vacation, and then, and, hey, can I get a sabbatical? And I'll write a few letters to a few churches. No, he, he's stuck in a prison. This is part of the prison epistles that are are connected with Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And if you've read Ephesians, you recognize the unity theme. If you read Philippians, you see the continued idea. Because churches in the face of persecution and suffering often struggled in this way. Here's something else you'll observe. Paul very rarely ever did what he did alone. You know, one of the things I love about Paul's ministry was that we focus so much, we think, oh, wow, Paul, I mean, how could he do that? all these things that he would do. But guess what? Paul never did anything alone. He was always tends to be, to be working with the team side by side. And in this case, he even introduces the letter to say, Paul and Timothy. Now, if you go back even to the book of Acts, in Acts 16, you have these pronouns that are used that Luke gives these statements. And we then traveled. So for sure, here's what I do know. Paul was there, Timothy was there, and Luke was there. And Silas was there in this case. So you've got this team of people unified for something that was bigger than any one individual. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, if the gospel isn't bigger than any one of our preferences, we are going to get in trouble and we will be disunified as a body of believers. If all of a sudden you make your preference elevated to such a degree that you can't look over on this side of the room and you think, ooh, I see them, I know that person, I don't agree with them. There is something wrong with the body. We have to guard it. We have to be careful. Part of the way we do that is by team effort. It's not any one person, but it's all of us together. I mean, none of us would want to happenstance come across an individual outside of the context of the chapel Sunday morning or small group and hear them bad-mouthing the chapel or bad-mouthing a chapel member or another Christian. It's at these particular moments where we have to be bold and say, you know what, there's, there's something wrong with that. Paul's going to teach us some of these things uh, as we walk through this book. We'll also see this, by the way, We'll also see a sense of Paul's proclamation of the gospel. And we'll get into that in just a moment, as Paul had a particular way of going into various cities. Now, let's think about the Philippian church just for a moment. Now, the area of Philippi, if if, if you remember in Acts chapter 16, and you can recall this particular story, but here you have Paul ministering in all the areas of Galatia, And he really, really wants to go to Bithynia and into the upper part of Asia. And for every time he tried to go there, he was stopped. And then he would try try something and he was stopped. Because we notice in Acts chapter 16, he says, and the Spirit forbid me to go. Now, in some sense, I can resonate a little bit with Paul in the course of finding a place where God would want me to be. Because in the course of this, there are times where uh, as, as I was working through figuring out where God wanted me to be, I literally sent off resume and then I saw someone and they said to me, well, so we didn't get your resume. And I said, what are you talking about? I sent it to you like the day that we talked. So we didn't get anything. I go back, there it is, I sent it. Guess what? God has a way of stopping you from going wherever you thought you might go. That's exactly where the initiation of the, of the city of Philippi comes into play. Paul wants to go here. He wants to go to Asia Minor. The Spirit prohibits him. Paul's sensitive to that prohibition by the Spirit. And then Paul hears, or he sees, the Macedonian call. All of a sudden, he has a vision, and here's an here's a individual 
on the, on, in the area of Macedonia saying, come on over. Like, we need your help. Now, I trust, probably, as if you think in your own life, you probably haven't had one of these kind of visions. <laughs> you think, shall I go to McDonald's or should I go to Chick-fil-A? And Chick-fil-A says, come. It's the Lord's chicken. <laughs> we, we don't have that, right? So there is a sense, which is the activity in Acts of the Holy Spirit, stopping and starting. Paul is so sensitive to this reality that he's reminding, we are reminded of it as we get into the book of Philippians, that Paul didn't even intend to go there, but the Holy Spirit intended for him to go. And when he became sensitive to the will of God in his life at that moment, and he was willing to listen, Paul probably started off many journeys like, well, I don't know what, entirely what that's about, but uh, Luke, Timothy, Silas, uh, let's get on the boat. Uh, we're going to head over. I mean, do you imagine traveling with a guy like Paul? Like, where, where do you think he's going to go next? I mean, not only to the mention to the reality that when you're on this team, it's not like it's free from persecution and suffering, by the way. I'm still somewhat astounded as you look at Paul's journeys and missions journeys to various towns and the attacks. Paul's let down by a bucket. He's left for dead. He's, he's, he's beaten. And then all of a sudden it's like, he gets up, he's not dead. And what if you weren't his partners? Like, I mean, I think this is why he needed Barnabas for the first half. Like, Barnabas was like, Paul, come on. Let's go try to die again. I mean, let's do this thing again and see what God will do. I mean, how many beatings have to take place before you really want to go up and do that again? I mean, here now they have this division of Paul and Barnabas and now enter Silas into the picture and now Silas is now experiencing what Barnabas was, was also experiencing with Paul at various moments. Well, he receives this Macedonian call in this particular area of Macedonia, by the way, is, is, is quite a large historical concept, much of which, by the way, uh, is, is hard to understand its significance and prominence in history without understanding the intertestamental time period. And if you understand Macedonia was really, was really named for Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. Now, during the conquest of the Macedonian Empire, where they were trying to, what, what was understood in history as Hellenization, or making the entire world a Greek-speaking world. All of this area, Philip of Macedon, decided to grab this one little area, and, and this city that was known as Philippi, and it was named after him, because 10 miles inland from Neapolis, where they would land, was this city, was this town of Philippi, at the foot of this, this mountain, who he could, who could be mined for gold. And he could get filthy, filthy rich. And so all of a sudden, this particular area became a very prominent area in the Macedonian Empire. You fast forward another hundred years, and all of a sudden the entrance of the Roman army comes on the scene, and they, they take over. The Alexander conquest is now gone. Uh, now Rome is elevated to power, and, and through a number and series of battles, all of a sudden the Roman emperor Octavian takes control of the city, and in order to secure it, to make sure that they wouldn't go astray from the Roman Empire, he makes the city a place where all the veterans of the army would then go as a place of retirement. So now, if you can imagine, like, do you want to be a Jew in a city filled with Romans? Not really. Not really. This is not the most like, appealing reality for many of those people. But here, in the city of Philippi, Paul enters into the scene and we begin to start to understand the significance of the city of Philippi. Now, notice this. I, I think it's very important for us to, to come to, to grips with this. The importance of biblical observation. I want you to know this. That biblical obs observation leads to an appreciation, which then leads to adoration. The degree to which you stop for a moment, and you begin to go, wow, look at that. Do you know this? I, I would have never thought that. 
It's all of these observations that all of a sudden lead us to go and appreciate the, the work of the gospel at large, and then guess what it happens to do? All of a sudden, you find them praising and loving and glorifying God, even if, by the way, all seems lost, and you're stuck in a prison, in the stocks, with you and your friend Silas, and you know, you're sitting there going, how about we sing? Okay, let's sing. Because all hope isn't lost, there's something quite special about this observation that we ought to begin to start seeing right off the bat is, am I a good observer of the Bible and of God's story of redemptive history? Do I step back for a moment out of the, the busyness of my schedule and do I even take time to read it? I can tell you how many times that I've come across individuals who have been Christians for long periods of time and when they're struggling and they're suffering and they're hurting and I'll ask them, so tell me a little bit about your relationship with the Lord. Describe it for me in a few words. Is it vibrant? Is it non-existent? Is it stagnant? Is it dull? How many of them will say non-existent? They'll say things like, I've tried to read the Bible, I've tried to go through it, but the pain is too much, the hurting is too much, I just don't seem to have enough time, and even when I do, I don't seem to take away a lot from it. We have to be good observers of the text. It is the only way that we can assure that we're going back time and time again to the right way to look at Scripture. And when we see all of this, we, see, we even see, in a sense, Look at the different people that were involved. Paul's sensitivity to the Macedonian call. Then he gets there on the shores and he makes it. He stays there a little bit. And now he observes, how does this church even happen? Here's his audience. So now you have the author, but now your audience. You have to observe something about this group of people to appreciate something about unity. Okay. Now think about the people that were initially involved in the Philippian church. Well, you can go back to Acts 16, and I hope you do later, just to recall these situations. But let me speed up the process for us as we think about it. He comes there, and he, what, what was, think about Paul's normal practice of proclamation. He would immediately find a synagogue, because as a rabbi, as one who had been trained, he would go there first, and then he would head out to the Gentiles. He goes there to find a synagogue, and guess what? He doesn't find one. All he can find, by the way, is some women that appear to be following the Lord or God-fears, and they're down by the river. Tuck this away, most often Jewish individuals would find a place by some river because of ritual cleansing. There's a reason why they were there. It just wasn't the open spot by the bank. There was a whole historical component that they would continue to begin uh, to, to flesh out. Paul goes down there. He proclaims this to Lydia, who was a well-known merchant, a Jewish merchant, and she welcomes them back into their house. And then you, you even go a little bit further, and all of a sudden, Paul and Silas are ministering, and lo and behold, what do they have? Here's this slave girl who is used by these individuals to make money by fortune-telling. Paul's somewhat, the text says in Acts 16, he's annoyed by it. It's like, Leave me alone, I'm trying to, to, to declare the gospel and this demonic, you know, influenced girl and, and all of a sudden he, he turns around and he says, come out. Well, you talk about causing a stir. Like, Paul, do we want to like keep this on the down low a little bit? Like, no, we're going to solve this right quick. We're going to get a big crowd of people because by the way, miracles were often the way in which a crowd gathered and a preaching service began. You can watch it all throughout the book of Acts. Miracles took place so that the proclamation of the gospel then often occurred to validate the message of the messenger. Now over and over again, all of a sudden, this, this slave girl now, her owners are so upset because they're not making money anymore. Now what do we do? The city is in a stir. They beat Paul and Silas. They put him in a jail and they say, well, why don't we sing a little bit? They sing, an earthquake comes, and all of a sudden the jailer is about ready to kill himself, and they say, stop! What are you doing? I mean, this guy's risking his life by saying, all right, why don't you come to my house? <laughs> I, I think most of us have, in, our, in circumstances would not say, come to my house. Like, we might say, let's go into the cell over here, and then maybe we'll just lock you back up. 
That's not the case. He says, something is going on here that is bigger than I ever imagined. He all of a sudden comes to Christ, and not only the Philippian jailer, but the Philippian jailer's household. The whole household. So now, here you've got a Jewish individual, uh, a Roman jailer likely, and a slave girl. It's just like, great start to a church. Group of Jewish ladies, Roman individual, and a former demon-possessed slave girl. Like, you think, was unity necessary? Jews, Romans, and slaves. Of course it was. The reality is, is Paul knows what he's doing and what he's hearing uh, in the course of this. Notice this, as, as, as by way of observation. How significant it was that it was a Roman colony. And Paul being a Roman citizen. Isn't this fascinating that when they want to imprison him in Acts, that all of a sudden they come back and say, they find out Paul's a Roman citizen, and they are scared. Because of his Roman citizenship, it afforded to him all kinds of rights under the Roman government. And now, and they says, why don't you just go away silently? I mean, the nerve of Paul to say, no, 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 you did this in public, you're going to correct it in public. And he goes right back before, and he makes them own this reality. Here's Paul in a Roman colony. Why is that also significant? Notice, because it's where, it's where the providence of God is put on display. Look at this map for a moment. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating when you think about following this. Now, you can only see it very, very briefly, but you can barely faintly uh, see the red line that's running across. This is known in the Roman world as the Ignatian Way. And you could probably look at some, you could, you could Google it, don't do it now, you'll get sidetracked and you'll be doing everything else. But the reality is, the Ignatian Way ran all from the Eastern Byzantine uh, Roman Empire all the way to Rome. Now, one of the things that was the most significant reality about the Roman Empire was this invention, Roman roads. Roman roads made the, the, the traveling so much easier than, than it ever was before. And you can see this as, she, as we flip to the next picture. Here's a picture of the old ancient Ignatian Way, now new and improved with lights on the side. Because why would this be significant in the providence of God? Guess what? Merchants, travelers would be taking this road, carrying it from one major city to the, to the other. You think God has a plan about the Philippian church working side by side, for the sake of the gospel, how are they going to get there? Well, they jump on the Ignatian Way, and guess what? They're on their way. And not only that, you come to a Roman colony, by the way, and most often they would speak Latin as the predominant language, but here in Macedonia, because of the influence of Alexander the Great, you had a trade language of the Greek language of commerce, what everybody knew. So God in his good providence, what does he do? Not only puts a Roman highway to make it easy for the gospel to travel from place to place to place, but he allows the prominence of a Greek language of commerce that every single place the apostles would have went and Paul would have journeyed, he would have been able to speak to them in the language that was common to them. There was something important about the way that God developed this in his own good providence and we should stand back in observation and go, Wow. Like, he knows what he's doing. And by the way, can, can we just even stop for a moment and say this? He knows what he's doing with your life. He knows the hurdles that you have to go over. He knows that the, what you think are detours are not detours for him. He knows the, perfect, uh, the, the kind of context of, of circumstances going on in your life. And sometimes we in our own, uh, in our own humanness go, but God, why are you doing that? And then you get to the other side of that journey and you look back and you are just in awe of, of God's providence put on display. That's what history, why history is so significant, especially biblical history. It, it doesn't just cause us to say, oh, well, that's an interesting event. It says there's a God behind the event. And that's no doubt what we see here uh, in the book of Philippians. And even, even by the way, as we think about uh, these, these particular areas, uh, you know, you, you think about the, the context of the book of Philippians. I mean, here you have Jewish women, Roman individuals, and a slave girl, and no doubt others. 
And, and Paul would be writing back to this newly established church later on. The book itself was written somewhere between the A.D. 60 and 62, if you want a, a year-date marker. The church was not that old. It's experienced all kinds of challenges and persecution. And Paul continues to, to wow us as he writes back and says, but God has a plan for all of this. I recognize it in my life. In fact, Paul is displaying it being in prison and he is saying, wow, this, this is a good God. Here's tip number two. Don't just be a good observer and then let observation go all by itself. I want you to know this. Biblical interpretation is absolutely critical. So sometimes what often happens in a group of people where they start to study the Bible together and they'll say this kind of phrase, which always makes me cringe to some degree. What does the Bible mean to you? Like, what do we have, like 500 meanings? No. The reality is interpretation was intended to the original audience for an original reason, and there is a specificity to it. There's a context behind it. Words alone, I am not allowed to play fast and loose and say, well, guess what? This is what it actually means to me. Have you ever been in a group, I've been in various settings where somebody's like, well, this is what I think it means to me. And then someone else pipes up and someone else pipes up and you're kind of thinking now, what do we do about all these meanings? There is a continuity in the Bible that we will search for in our study of the book of Philippians so that we can say, here's what it means, be based upon the context that has been given and the words that surround it. And this is what, the, what often individuals studying the Bible will call hermeneutics. The study of interpretation. I realize some of you just said, Herman who? It's not really important that you remember the phrase hermeneutics other than you remember the reality that being a good observer also means you must be a good interpreter. You can't just say the Bible says whatever you want it to say. It has to mean something in a context for a time period of people. And can I just say this to you? It will never mean something to you before, it'll only mean something to you once you figure out what it meant to the original recipients. That's when you find out that there are many applications to a various components of texts of Scripture. So studying this becomes important. This is why, by the way, we cover a little history. I know some people are like, oh, the history thing. Don't tire of history if observation leads to an appreciation which leads to adoration, because if we, if, we, if we don't pay attention to it, we miss things about God's movement. Now, here's why context and interpretation matters. The book of Philippians is filled with all of these really memorable statements. I bet you could probably uh, end, uh, say the, the end of this phrase with me. For me to live is Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always in. It's like these statements are like begging for Christian plaques when you go to Kohl's or somewhere else. It's like, that's what Paul had in mind. He knew Kohl's stores were going to open and they were going to put these statements on there. No, the reality is, is we get so in, in, enthralled with various statements like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We put it on a plaque and it's removed from its context and all of a sudden we don't even know. What does it mean in the context that Paul was saying? And what is he getting at? Can it just be simply used for every sports team who goes out to try to defeat their opponent and say, yes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Is that what Paul had in mind? I don't think so. Is it applicable that you can do things with the right attitude at the right time? Yes. But the intended meaning is something that is bound to a context. And it's so important for us to remember, especially when we go through these short statements that we're all so familiar with. Paul writes this in interpretation. There, there are a number of different reasons. And, and epistles are often viewed and interpreted by understanding their occasion. If you read through any of the prison epistles, or a epistle for that matter, you, you need to be observing and asking yourself, what is the occasion that has caused Paul to write this letter to these individuals. Okay, that's, epistles are occasional documents, which means when you search for them and you begin to find them in the setting of a normal writing of a letter. There's a greeting, 
There's, there's some information Paul wants to say, and then he gets down to business, and the business here in Philippians, I think, is somewhat fourfold, and we'll unpack these as we walk through. Is Epaphroditus' condition? You see this in Philippians 2.26, uh, that Paul is very, very concerned that the Philippian believers have an understanding of what's going on with Epaphroditus. They loved him, he was an encouragement, he was sent to Paul, and he wants to let them know he's okay. Paul also wants them to know, according to Philippians 1.27 and 28, that how do you live in suffering? Paul was modeling it by writing this letter in prison, but he's saying to the believers, I know that there's suffering. Keep in mind for a moment, the backdrop of the Roman Empire is Nero. And if you understand anything about Nero and his psychotic behavior, that he was willing to kill Christians at any moment. And so if you were to get caught, Paul understands this. He's saying, let your manner of conduct be worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one faith. And the context of suffering is often in the backdrop of this, which is why he gives a heavenly citizenship focus, like in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will complete it and will come to these. Or this idea in Philippians 3 of being a heavenly citizen. By the way, look at, look at him play off the idea of the Roman city and colonization of Philippi. You're not a citizen of Philippi, a Roman citizen. There's a heavenly citizenship. There's something that's far better. But not only that, you, you see uh, a real predominant occasion of this in Philippians 4 where there's internal conflict between Yodi and Syntyche, which means we're probably going to be learning some lessons about how to retain unity by resolving conflict appropriately. Everybody wants to run away from conflict, and Paul says we have to run to it with grace and love and speaking the truth in love so that we can resolve it. And then he also just wants to simply encourage the Philippians in their progress of the faith. Of all the churches that Paul wrote back to, you see this heartfelt response that we're going to get into next week and Paul's thanksgiving of all that the Philippian believers meant. And I would even say, Paul loved a ton of people and a ton of churches, but there's something going on in the Philippian church that Paul highlights this, this real incredible desire that they had that it appeared that other people didn't have and they displayed it to Paul. We're going to watch that in the course of this. So we've got to pay attention. Biblical observers, biblical interpreters, and let's not forget this in tip number three. We have to apply. Interpretation alone is not going to get anywhere, which means we have to actually every Sunday, day in, day out, every time we study the Bible, we're going to ask ourselves this. So What? What does that matter to me, and why does it matter to my life? And application is absolutely critical, which, let me just touch on this for a moment. We're going to have to begin to evaluate our own hearts and our own minds as we apply this, is how well do we do at suffering and God's sovereignty? Are we okay with that? I mean, less than a week ago, I had, I, I, there was a Zoom call that was given for a, friend, uh, for, a, for a missionary friend of mine who's in the Ukraine as a missionary here from the States who decided to stay. And when I was over there teaching in Ukraine, uh, I had, I had a, a, a godly woman saint who was, who's named Katya who was translating for me the entire week. And on the Zoom call, all of a sudden, she's, she's able to come and she's in the car with her sister, with children, running for their lives, weeping hysterically, trying to get to the, to the border of Poland. And yet at the same time, in the midst, in between her weeping, here's what she said. She says, we as Ukrainian church members need to remember that as God used Nebuchadnezzar, he, can, he might be choosing to use Putin. And we don't know why, and we don't know the extent but our goal is to trust him. And we've been together as a unified body. And you know why she was weeping? Because she left her family behind and she said, I don't want to leave my church. In the midst of the intense suffering and persecution, what is happening is the churches are being pushed and fused together. That's what hardship does. That's what suffering does. We're going to have to look in our own lives and say, can I welcome that and still be a person filled with unity and filled with joy? Because sometimes we don't like it. We're going to have to ask ourselves things like this in Philippians chapter uh, 1, and we'll come to this next week. Is Christ really our sole source of blessing? 
Or as in Philippians 2, is he really our future hope? Can you honestly say as a believer, like, he's all I need. Is he enough for you? Or how important unity really is when you see internal conflict. It was always external conflict, but you know, it followed almost closely behind. You can see it in the book of Acts. It's like you get outside persecution, internal conflict. Outside persecution, internal conflict. I mean, I think Satan knows what he's trying to do. Disrupt him from without, disrupt him from within. If we can give this in disarray, if we can keep them in disarray, they will not be able to focus on their future hope as heavenly citizens, and they will not be unified. And when they don't, when they're unable to do that, they can't work side by side for the gospel, and it won't proceed. That's his goal. He hates the gospel, by the way. It's not just that you want, I want you to think, he's like, Satan is out for you. No, he is out for you. Why? Because if you're a believer and you are dwelt with the Spirit of God, guess what he really hates? He hates the glory of God. His whole thing is to try to get you to distrust so that he can derail you, so that he can defame God. He, you are inconsequential to Satan in the reality that you are a means to an end of defaming God. And whatever means he can do to accomplish that end so that people don't come to Christ and people don't understand the gospel and that, that, that congregations are disunified, he will do it. Which is why we have to be so attentive to this reality of unity. And we have to ask ourselves, even at the chapel, we have to say this. What's my contribution to unity? Am I a person who unifies people or disunifies people? You know what? I've been in the church long enough to realize there are unifiers and disunifiers. And I only come to find out who the disunifiers are at times by circumstances that happen that reveal what's going on in the heart. We have to ask ourselves that during the course of this study. How unified do we want to be? working side by side for the sake of the gospel to appreciate as we observe and interpret and apply these things together. And here's what we're also going to find. We're going to see an example of Paul's attitude. I love Paul's attitude put on display. I mean, think about, I mean, I don't know how many times. There's two verses in my family that, that I think were pretty predominant. One, Ephesians 6.1, pretty common. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Second one, Philippians 2.14. Do all things without whining or complaining. Love those two verses as a parent. Okay? Now, think about it. Anybody here ever complained? Anybody lie? Oh, a lot. Reality is, do you notice that even in your own soul, in your own flesh, that sometimes you have a propensity to complain about what God is doing at any, God, any time God determines he's going to do it? And your first response is like, come on, Lord, now... We do that. Paul's reminding us there's something important about not complaining and recognizing God's sovereignty over all life events in history. Okay? Don't watch a news venue and think, oh, we need, a, we need this incredible political ruler. Guess what? We need Jesus Christ. That's what we need. We don't need, in a sense, we want wars to end. But the reality is, is what we really want is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in triumph and ruling with a sash upon his shoulder that reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what I'm waiting for. That is the heavenly hope, by the way, that will then be embedded in the life of the believer, which will then begin to express the need and, and the motivation for unity. It gives you a solid foundation because this world is not about what you want, how you feel, what your joys are. It is about the joys we have in Christ. And I'll tell you what, it's hard to retain it at times because we go through hardship and challenges. We complain. We're going to learn something about contentment. I don't know if you're like me, but I, can't, I, I don't think I could honestly say like, in, as I observe my own life and have done even soul-searching in my own life to think, how content am I willing to be? If all I had was Jesus Christ, and this is, what he had, this is, this is all I need, I don't need more than that. I think it's going to beg questions in our life of contentment in evangelism and the way that Paul looks to evangelize the lost, put his life at stake, 
put his reputation on the line and said, I'm going to go and I'm going to share the gospel. We got to be seeing that. We should see that in the life of the body. But we should also see it done with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. And I'll tell you what, I have seen over the years, and I'm sad to say it, a lot of joyless, thankless Christians. It's like, but if we're good observers and we see what God is doing, it will lead us to this appreciation and adoration as we interpret the Bible and we say, I just love him. There's no reason to not have this deep-seated inner joy that God has everything under control. We'll see something about friendships. There's something special I want you to keep your eye on when he begins as we go through this book and he starts talking about the way he thinks about Timothy. And the suffering that he, that he went through long, alongside of Silas. Friendships are often forged through the fire. Which means that sometimes we have to go through hard things in order to experience good things. Because without the hard things, we wouldn't see how good we really have it. God knows that. And as he functions in this regard, just notice in Philippians 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants in the Greek language, the doulos, the bondservant of Christ Jesus. What, what does that highlight for Paul? It highlights this. There's someone who owns me. And if you're a believer here this morning, what you did by trusting and repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you removed your own personal ownership and you gave the ownership to someone else. And now your life is not your own, which is, which is why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because my life isn't my own. And can I say this? Your life isn't your own. It belongs to someone. And being a bond slave, a servant of Jesus Christ, and it was his whole team, it was Timothy and Paul and Silas and Luke and a host of other people who came to Christ. And I think part of the proclamation was, and this is what the gospel is, it's an allegiance to another king, to the rightful king, Jesus Christ, who I will will be willing to serve, to suffer, to find joy, to find contentment, because he owns me. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not owned by him. You're, you're allowing yourself to, to be given over to a different kind of environment, a different person. And Satan, if he has his grips, he will keep you from understanding the gospel as much as he can. But our God and the spirit of our God is so powerful that no matter what, if God wants somebody saved, John 6, I love it, that the spirit of God draws them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We should be praying that for people. We should be praying for the lost that we come across saying, God, do what I cannot do. I think Paul's life was just filled with prayers for, for unbelieving individuals. So that why? So he, they could together be bondservants, slaves of Jesus Christ. And I think it really does beg the question, what does your ownership look like to the King of Kings? How, how good of a servant are you to him? How much are you sacrificing to serve the body? How much are you giving over to display unity, to have unity? We're going to be challenged with these things as we walk through this book. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Notice this. To the saints, those who have been made holy, set apart for the living God, who now is owned by the living God, Paul was a slave to Christ so that he could be a servant to men. It's the way he was. I'm a slave for Christ so that I could be a servant of men. And you know what? Here he says, it's to all the saints, all these believers in the local vicinity of Philippi and the churches in that surrounding region. And he says, in Christ Jesus. Oh, don't run by this word, this, this, this word in. In union with. You are connected to with an inseparable bond that nobody can take away, which is why Philippians 1.6 is so important. He who began a good work in you will complete it 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Because you are not just you alone. You are a bondservant and a slave of Jesus Christ who are inseparably united and that inseparable union ought to cause unity. And if it doesn't cause unity, we're doing it wrong. We've got to figure out how to love, the, love God and love the brethren in a way that God would be glorified. As we walk through this, here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we prepare and continue on our study. One, pray that you and I and all of our congregation together as we study the book of Philippians will, will observe the right historical facts. We will interpret in the right way and that we will apply it fervently to our lives. We won't just leave the context of whatever we're covering for the Sunday morning and we've got that done with. You'll take it home. You'll talk about it. You might even might, you want to do this as a family. I've often done this with my family as, as whatever series a pastor happened to be going through. On Saturday night, family worship is all about the text that's coming, that's coming on Sunday. And you're going to be able to know that as we go through this book. Prepare your hearts and mind so that you ask the Holy Spirit to help each and every one of us in the body of believers understand the Bible's significance in its context to our lives and that we would apply it in a sense with desperation, that we would be committed to be unified and joy-filled. You know what this might look like if you're a teenager? Get together with a few other teens. Start reading through the book of Philippians. I can't tell you during the course of a study, I just immerse myself in reading and reading Philippians over and over again, almost to the point when you do that so much, you almost get it memorized by reading it. Make that a point in your own life. And then do this. Pray for the unity of our church. Pray for joy in the life of believers that is side by side as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he alone would get all the glory that he deserves so that when we come to the very end, we can accomplish what, what Philippians chapter 1, 27, only let this manner of life be worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That whether he is away or whether he is absent, Paul says, that you with one mind, with one spirit, side by side, working for the sake of the gospel. That's what the church is. Believers committed to unity and joy for the sake of the glorification of the King of Kings. That we can be committed to. I will be praying for you, but it has to be reciprocal. Because I need it so bad. And you need it so bad. We've got to pray for each other. This can be a source of the way we pray as we begin our study in the book of Philippians um, from here on out. So let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful and indebted to you for the way that you've developed earth history for us to observe it, appreciate it, and adore you. Lord, I pray that you would just help us see through the right interpretation a significance of all the things that you told the individuals at Philippi so that we can grasp an understanding of where these principles and attitudes need to apply in our own lives. And that is a spirit-filled work to develop the fruits of the Spirit that will be put on display through Paul's letter in the book of Philippi. Lord, thank you for doing this for us, and we look forward to how you will change us as we study together. In your name we pray, amen.